Welcome to The Dark Word. As always, I am your host, Philip Fricasi, and uh, I've got a good buddy on today, a hardworking, bizarro, mainstream, indie hybrid author who's going to have a lot of uh, really interesting uh, things to say for you guys who are listening. With me is Jeremy Robert Johnson, and he is the author of The Loop, Skullcrack City, Entropy in Bloom, and much more. He lives and writes in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing? Doing great, Phil. Thanks for having me, man. Do you do Oregon or do you do Oregon? Oregon. You... Oh, okay. So it is Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We do uh, Oregon, Willamette. We get a lot of like uh, Willamette out here. And then uh, I can't remember what the other one. Oh, we have a street uh, that looks like the word couch in Portland, but it's pronounced cooch, which is a tough one to explain to people. <laughs> but uh, dude, I just spit my coffee. Everything makes sense out here. Yeah. I literally just spit my coffee. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so look, let's get into it. And I'm really excited to have you on, and because you know we've known each other for a few years now, and um, you know you when I first you know experienced Jeremy Robert Johnson, it was through super indie, you know, micro presses, um, and then you kind of evolved and into uh, really, I guess, what would be called the Skullcrack City uh, moment. And then things things sort of turned a little bit for you and you started going with bigger presses and and you, you know, you, you did The Loop, which is kind of, you know, a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, sort of more mainstream novel. And then you've done, so we'll get into the reprints and all that kind of stuff because I'm really fascinated about that. But let's start with like, how did you get started? Because I, I know a lot of writers like hearing about established writers, how they first got in, broke in. What was your first sale? Um, and, you know, what lessons did you take from like those early, early publications? Oh, dude. So um, I'm going to date myself here. But when I started submitting stuff, um, it was pre-internet. <laughs> so it was still, you know, buying a copy of Writer's Guide, marking off every magazine that sounded interesting with a post-it note buying, you know, $100 worth of stamps and sending out printed manuscripts with a self-addressed stamped envelope and then just waiting for the mail every day, you know? Um, and so I started that in earnest, probably around 19 years old. Uh, okay. I had dropped out of college to become a writer, uh, moved back into my parents' garage and, and instead became a video store clerk, which is a, it's an awesome calling. But <laughs> like I realized, okay, if I'm, if I'm not going to be kind of morbidly depressed about this, I need to also uh, continue writing. So, yeah, um, And by the way, for those of you listening, a video store clerk is somebody that used to, oh God, yeah. to rent VHS <laughs> tapes to people. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, we had, we had uh, VHS, we had Laserdisc. Uh, we were a little past the Betamax era, but uh, That's oh funny. my God, I forget that that no longer exists either. So, yeah. Don't um, start, don't get me started on phone. What my, my son once asked me, what do you, why do you say hang up? What does that even mean? Anyway, but I digress, <laughs> yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was I, I saw that thing recently about how um, people don't understand what the save button means anymore because it's related to like the three and a half inch floppy disk image. Oh, and they're just fine. like, oh, that's that symbol that means save, but it has no physical context, right? So it right. just means save. It's interesting. Right. Yeah. Outmoded, I, man. I know. I'm sorry. I, I, did, I totally interrupted your train of thought. But you were talking about how you started. Uh, oh, and by the way, it's funny. You mentioned those SASC envelopes and, you know, the kids today. You kids today. You know, you... um. You know, they get these, you get your email rejections and you're all like, oh man, you know, that was like not, a, you know, that wasn't very nice or whatever. In the old days, you'd send out the envelopes and you get like a postcard oh, with, yeah. like that, with that red stamp 
yep. reject, <laughs> rejected or whatever it was. And it was so harsh, right? Because you were just like, oh, like you're really, it's just, it's a stamp, you know, it's not even a, it's like that reject. And I said, anyway, go ahead, but continue. Yeah. So you were talking. Well, no, about, and you would kind of, you would kind of feel the envelope when it came back too. Uh, I know. You'd see it who was thin. And you'd, <laughs> yeah. And if it was thin, if it felt like it was just, you know, you could see that little hovering single piece of paper in yeah. there that wasn't even, you know, uh, a full size letter or contract. You were like, ah, damn it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was so you were lucky if you got the stamp. Sometimes they just had them pre-printed to reject, you know, reject. Oh yeah. 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 It, I, I mean, I, I, once uh, like Raylan.com and all that stuff came out, I gotta be honest. It's, it's not one of those like, Oh, you darn kids. I'm just like, it got better. Like the whole system to me oh, yeah. improved radically as far as turnover time and, and ease of uh, use and, and being able to find resources without actually, you know, um, I didn't live, I was living in Bend. So I, when I would go up to Portland, I would go into the Powell's and spend an hour in the um, magazine section, flipping through the magazines, trying to figure out who was publishing stuff that I actually liked. Um, and then, you know, looking to their front page to find out what their mailing address was and then driving back to Bend with, you know, a flipbook full of, of addresses for submissions. Um, you know, so once I found the internet, I was like, well, this is saving me a lot of gas money. That's yeah. And I want to unpack something really quick. And then I want to get back to what your original thought was because, uh, but it's interesting that you say um, you wrote down uh, publishers who were publishing stuff that you like. Cause that's one of the things that I, you know, we talk about on the show is, you know, writers ask like, who should I be submitting to? And I always say, submit to people who publish stuff you like or who mm -hmm. publish stuff that you think is similar to, to your work. And that's kind of like a first step versus just like, shotgunning it to anybody who publishes horror they may not publish the kind of horror or sci-fi or genre or whatever it is that you write and i think publishing uh sending to people who publish things that you like or that you connect with is a is a, is a nice place to start as well oh 100 man it's it's like do the work on the front end know where you're landing you know and if you can shoot a note to the editor too and say hey i really dug you know so and so and issue this you know uh it shows you're not just spamming them too. Yeah. I think is, is beneficial because they're human beings on the other side too, you know? Yeah. And that sort of goes the same for agents. You can send an agent, you can say, I'm a big fan of your client, so-and-so. Oh. And I thought you'd be a good, I thought this would be a good fit for you based on the fact that, you know, that it, I feel like it's a similar vein to this other client of yours or whatever. Yeah. If you can <laughs> throw a little comp analysis at them in advance, you know, show them you're thinking about the market too. That's, yeah, that's good on the business front. Exactly. Um, All right. Sorry. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. So I'm 19. Every Sunday, uh, after, after Simpsons and after X-Files, I sit down and I write two short stories until I pass out. Um, so that was, that was my routine to kind of stay sane um, while I was working the day job. And then just submitting those shorts. And it took me two years, and I think the count was 232 paper rejections uh, before I sold my first short story. By then, I'd moved to another city, and I heard from a literary magazine called Happy out of New York. Uh, that not only did they want the piece, they said they wanted to anchor the magazine with it. They wanted a hand-drawn illustration, which was questionable, but I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it for you. And they offered to pay me. Uh, they were going to pay me 50 bucks. So um, yeah, I mean, that's, you talk about high points in a writer's career. I don't know if anything quite beats the physical and mental high of like actually breaking through into a cool market um, after years of labor. So for sure, um, I remember I, nobody was home. Thank goodness. I just remember running around the house, just yelling stuff out loud, just like, <laughs> right. you know, just, just at the top of my lungs, like so it couldn't have been more excited. So, um, yeah. And you and kind then, of rolled from there. Or was it, was that sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the, the stone that broke the dam or. Right. Or it was, it was the Sisyphean effort until all of a sudden I snuck one through to the top of the hill and it actually started rolling. And after that it was, um, 
it was actually weirdly fast um, just because I finally had a real credit to my name for cover right. letters, which I think said something. And, um, and then I started getting picked up on a regular basis. And at the same time, I was um, doing this Clarion style writing workshop where I was producing a story a week and I was getting real critiques and I was learning a lot about story structure and um, kind of refining my voice and writing a lot of pastiches and just, just working like crazy on shorts. Um, and, but that effort, you know, it really started clicking over and then, uh, yeah. And then I got a uh, angel dust apocalypse landed with the racer head maybe a year later and, and it was all, uh, on the up and up from there. And so you really started, it, it, I mean, it sounds like you, your focus was very much on short fiction, right? And then, Only, yeah. And then at what point did you make the decision to evolve into a longer, you know, into a novel length piece? Like what was the, what was the mindset at that time? Um, I think it was, uh, people were asking me for it and I wasn't even sure I knew what I was doing as a short story writer yet, uh, let alone taking on kind of the scope of, of trying to do the structure of a novel. But I also was starting to realize the kind of outer limitations of, okay, you can get these anthology placements. Now you're in contact with editors. Um, you're having stuff land places, but you can't get you with just shorts, unless you have the, you know, the crazy luck and effort and skill of like Saunders or Hempel or, you know, um, you think about, I don't know, like I think of Ray Bradbury as a shorts guy, even though he ran the, the spectrum. There's certain people who, oh, Kelly Link, you know, that broke breakthrough on shorts, but that's right. such a minimal, it's such a, it's such a, it's a lightning strike situation, you know? Yeah. And in kind of recognizing that in the market and in people saying, Hey, when are we going to get something full length out of you? Um, I decided to, to commit myself to doing a novel and, and then Skullcrack kind of came out of that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, and I wanted, and let, this will be a good segue because I do want to talk to you a little bit about some business stuff because I had the same experience, which was, I had my, I, yeah, what I call agent number one at the time, uh, uh, agent number one was like, look, this is all great. And if you want to write dark, short fiction, because that's what you love and that's what you want to do, you know, with your writing career, that's totally fine, man. But just keep your day job yeah. because <laughs> you're not going to, it's not going to pay the bills. Now, if you want to try and etch out some sort of career as a writer, you've got to go, you've got to start writing novels. And that was why I initially started writing A Child Alone with Strangers, which just came out yesterday. And um, because I was like, okay, well, I'm going to take a crack at a genre novel. And I'd written novels before that, but I'd never written a genre novel. And um, so Skullcrack was sort of your first effort at a long form project. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I had, I had an earlier uh, collaboration that I did with a favorite artist of mine, Alan M. Clark. That uh, was a, a 42,000 word um, dark psychological horror thriller called Siren Promised that was uh, released initially as just a limited on a bloodletting press. So it was like, you know, 276 copies total. But at, at 41, 42,000 words, it felt closer to a novella for me. So as far yeah. as the scope of things, you know, you can, you could keep the arc of that really small. Um, and so Skullcrack felt like the first time I was going for the, you know, the big 80,000 words. So Yeah. And then who did you initially sell Skullcrack City to? Oh, God. So get this. Uh, I thought I had myself uh, to a degree uh, when I was about a third into it. I thought it felt like a John Dies at the End kind of comp because of its comical elements. Uh -huh. um, and I actually obligated myself at the time to Permuted Press, uh, which is a whole 
other <laughs> awful, awful story. Um, this guy, uh, Anthony Zaccardi, that's now over at the notorious uh, Post Hill Press, had told uh, apparently like 100 people in one day that Permuted was going into hardcover distribution for all titles and uh, just bought up the rights to, to everything they could get their hands on. And then uh, when it was revealed that that uh, was false, a lot of people pulled their contracts. And, and thank goodness I was able to uh, extricate Skullcrack out of there at that point and uh, find a new home for it. So, but, uh, so yeah. that was so. So who? So did Permuted actually publish that that soft cover? That initial? Who, no, that who, ended up with. Um, uh, so the funny thing is, I pulled it from Permuted and right. uh, went to my agent and I said, "Hey, actually, I've got I've finally got a novel on deck." Um, I think it's a little weirder than what you normally do, but do you want to take a look? And she looked at it. And she said, you, want, you might want to go the indie route with this one. <laughs> so she was really forthright with me. She's like, she, same thing with the short fiction. I said, you know, hey, do you want to represent any of this? And she's like, I don't really mess around with short fiction, but uh, keep sending me novels. And when you get one, I think I can, you know, sell into the commercial marketplace. We'll do it together. So um, she was very pragmatic with me about that stuff. But, yeah. Uh, and then how did you get... Having, a, having an agent at that time. So did you acquire an agent based on the strength of your short fiction? Yeah. It, um, so whenever people ask me for agent advice, I, I try to, to tell them that I am about the worst person to go to for that because the way I fell into it was was a, a no, super anomalous and of its time. So there was actually a, a popular blog called Potty Mouth, P-O-D-D-Y Mouth, that was supposed to be like a New York insider who was going through the dregs of all these print-on-demand books in the you know early to mid 2000s, and um, recommending the stuff they thought deserved recognition. So they ran this thing called the Needle Awards, and at the end of the year, they published you know a list of five books that they felt deserved commercial attention. People they thought were going to break through into the marketplace. It was like myself, and then uh, Jeremy Robinson, the thriller author, and a couple other folks, and. Within a week of that, apparently this person really was known in the industry because I had, uh, I think, 32 different queries from, from agents contacting me saying, hey, wow. take a look at this and, and know what else you have uh, on deck. Yeah. Um, and that's how I met Molly, who I'm with to this day. Molly at the time was uh, two agencies prior. She was with a smaller but well-known kind of New York agency. And then she jumped across to Foundry. And then I think do maybe to uh, some some movie deals that she got with Jonathan Evison. She ended up at CAA, which is where we are now. So, just the the nicest, most patient advocate I could possibly ever ask for. Um, but who found me through a, a blog about weird books, you know? Yeah, um, and, what, and it stuck what, with me. So, what was the book that you had uh, submitted for the competition or for the contest or whatever? That's the, the thing is is it wasn't even a, a competition. It, it was un. It was unknown to me until all of a sudden I was notified I was up for this needle award. Oh, um, interesting. It was, oh, it was so Angel he Dust randomly, Apocalypse. so he just yeah. randomly chose you. Oh, that's why. Yeah. So whoever they were, they they had just you know heard enough things about this book to check it out and um, and push for it and and put it out there. But that's great. So literally, like the only way I have an agent is blind luck, and the only way I'm over at CAA is because uh, while she was busy not selling my weird stuff, uh, Molly Glick just made crazy moves in the, in the business. Like, you know, she, she has like the subtle art, of not giving a fuck. She's got, I think like president Biden's last book. Like I'm, I'm an anomalous person in her, uh, in her wheelhouse. Right. Too, which is why when people come to me and they're like, do you think Molly would be interested in this genre stuff? I, I always have a hard time with that. Cause I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's her thing. Back when she found me, she actually thought I was going to pivot to literary at the time. There was this, this, uh, 
concept that I would kind of follow up in like a Chuck Palahniuk, like Irving Welsh kind of mode. Um, mm-hmm. And I ended up just, I write horror. <laughs> it's what comes out of me. So, so in the end, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm pegged now. Yeah. And that's an interesting point because you, I mean, that you, you, yes, you're correct. Like you're, I think the way you got your agent and, and the way that you work with them is an anomaly. It's kind of a, a, a contrast to sort of how you, um, you know, how you uh, first approach an agent, you know, you usually approach an agent who sells the kind of stuff that you create. Right. And, uh, and to your point, you know, that wasn't even what she wasn't even in her wheelhouse. Uh, and, but, but, and yet, you know, you have the representation to get in the doors you need to get into. So sometimes you fall into stuff like that and it's, you know, and it's, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to, um, Rachel Harrison and uh, who wrote the return and, uh, 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 the, the witch, I can't remember her other titles, but the book Such about sharp the witch teeth the, too, right? Such sharp teeth. And then, yeah. yeah and then crackle, cackle, cackle. Yeah. That's what, yeah, which was excellent. Very funny. But anyway, she was talking about how she got her, you know, she sold her first book without agent. She did it through like a Twitter contest Whoa. and that's how she sold the return <laughs> so, so i get you know if, if there's a takeaway it's that it's putting your work out there has is probably a really good way to try to to increase your odds of getting representation if you're a new writer because if you don't get your work out there then there's no way anybody's going to see it but like you know you, like you enter or you know you got you had to work out that the guy saw the put the put the potty guy saw or whatever, and Rachel put you know entered that contest. So it's kind of crazy how you can get agents. What, you know, when I got my current agent, I literally Googled horror uh, literary horror agent, and her name popped up, and I and I queried her, and 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 she read my manuscript and blah blah blah, and that was it and we were we connected and she's left her agency now she's her own agency but so yeah it's really weird how people get this representation and the fact that you're at caa is a huge a huge win it's a nice thing where have your agent also you know um building her own career and therefore taking her clients along with her um so i wanted to ask you about publishing because you've done the micro press stuff you've done the indie stuff you've 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 done the mid uh, kind of size publishers, you know, you worked with Nightshade with your story collection and now you, you know, the loop was a big, a big five. So you talk a lot, or I've heard you talk before about, um, what putting in the work for every book. And I've seen you post about like, okay, we're six months out folks. Like, this is where you got to like, I got to make my, you know, make my, my salad and please (laughs) start, you know, please get the pre-orders up. So, and, but can you talk a little bit about, and I think, you know, you talked, and I'm I'm pulling what you had tweeted about recently, which was about um, the Tom Piccarelli, you know, advice about uh, you know doing being your own publicist because you know it, some some writers will get paper plates and some you know will get the fine china as it were as you mentioned. So can you talk a little bit about your experience in that and how you approach like when you have a book coming out, how you approach it from like a promotional perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Um... It definitely just comes from starting with a grassroots mentality, right? So coming out with Eraserhead Press and, um, you know, in the Bizarro scene, the whole the whole ethos around that was was DIY. And, you know, a lot of it was inspired by, like, you know, Minor Threat and Fugazi selling, you know, cheap cassette tapes and getting out there and doing the legwork and getting in front of people. 
and uh, making it about the experience and making it something kind of singular and, and memorable. And it was such a fun concept. It had, it had such a positive energy to it, um, especially at the time, you know, print on demand stuff and indie publishing uh, had such a nasty stigma around it. It was seen as, as you know, if you if you failed in the marketplace, then you go to print on demand, you know. Um, and so it was that that effort to fight back against that and say, no, some people just want, you know, artistic control of their their weird stuff and they know there's an audience out there and they, they want to reach them to the best of their ability. So um, I think it just just having roots in that from the get-go um, informed my sense of what has to be done to to get in front of people and to, you know, make the art first and, and never think about the marketplace when you're creating. Think about, you know, are you digging it? Are you are you are you excited about the art? Because if you're not excited, nobody else is going to be later, you know? Um, but once the product exists, if you're deciding to enter the marketplace, making that decision to recognize that now you're playing, you know, with capitalism and marketing, and demographics and publicity and market penetration and, and all the super gross stuff, right? That you right. Know, Bill, yeah. Bill Hicks was saying, you know, go ahead and kill yourself if you're thinking about this stuff. So um, it's, it's a weird mix of, of those kind of two worlds of, of the business of publishing and then the art of writing, you know, um, but coming at it from, listen, if, if I don't get directly in front of people and show them something they can remember at this convention, you know, with the bizarros, then, then why would they pick my book out of the millions of other books? You know, if I, if I don't have a dynamic title, if I don't work to find the absolute best cover I can for this thing and to make my voice unique, what's the point of listening to me right out of all their options. So, um, I think coming, coming to it with that mentality, um, is absolutely beneficial. And then, you know, on the flip side, even with big five or kind of middle market stuff like uh, Skyhorse, um, with Entropy and Bloom, my publicist actually left the company on uh, my release day, <laughs> which, you know, thank goodness she'd already got some arcs out and stuff. But uh, Hey, man, I'm just impressed you yeah. had a publicist. Right, right. I, was, uh, I had a publicist right up till release day and, the, and then was instantly set adrift. Um, and then my editor there left shortly after. So that's been a separate uh, compelling experience. But, but uh, it did get out there quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I love a lot of what you can do in the uh, um, independent world, especially because I have stuff that isn't commercial and that I wouldn't reasonably foist upon a commercial audience, right? Um, so, like, my, my collection now, All the Wrong Ideas, is not something I would put out through a big five uh, because there's a, lot of <laughs> there's a lot of bizarre stuff in there that would, would alienate uh, the casual reader that's, you know, browsing a Barnes & Noble for horror fiction, right? Um, and so I think it's also just kind of being canny and looking at the marketplace and saying, does this, where does this fit, right? Uh, does this fit in the independent realm? And, oh, God, the, just the absolute blessing of the small press readership, which is where you find just some of the smartest, most adventurous, weirdest readers that are, they're willing to go in for an experience that isn't even pleasant <laughs> just to see what it feels like, right? There are people out there trying super exotic foods just to find yeah. out what it's like. And, and so God bless the small, ple- small press uh, readership and then you know or if you have some where i was like okay with the loop it's it's got some some rough edges on it certainly um you know it has some bleakness and some kind of splatter punk odes and stuff but it's also a zombie book um with a likable central character so i knew it that with that one let's let's see what the big five thinks right and and molly felt the same way so um i think knowing kind of knowing the market and then saying do we go to the mattresses with this and get weird or do we go to the big market? And then no matter what saying, how do we get it in front of people? I mean, even more so now there's, there's so much 
when I started out, I wasn't competing with social media, right? Um, for anybody's time or streaming services. And so it almost felt like it was easier to get books in front of people than, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, well, I, you know, I, I kept, you know, you mentioned it and I, part of me thinks that I don't want to, I don't know if I want to say big fives, but it definitely feels like bigger presses are taking on more bizarre, more experimental, you know, I see horror writers, you know, I'm thinking of Eric LaRocca, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Halle Piper, you know, even to an extent, Stephen Graham Jones, like these guys are writing pretty wild, dark, you know, and, and Eric LaRocca and Halle's case is like pretty, you know, splatterpunk kind of stuff. And they're, you know, Eric's on Titan, you know, that's, a, that's a big press. I just wonder, do you feel like there's, do you feel that there's a, uh, a current change? Like, do you feel there's a sea change when it comes to like, what bigger presses are, are willing to to uh, experiment with? Or do you feel like it's still, indie is still sort of like the bedrock of like experimental or more uh, out there fiction? Um, no, I mean, it's there's definitely been an improvement. I mean, man, you talk about the only good Indians breaking through. That book structurally is weird as fuck. Right. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, it's got, it's got character POV shifts. Um, is it a slasher? Is it a supernatural thing? Is it a, a meditation on all these other ideas? Uh, it's got some like final destination gore gags. It's got a totally bizarre, um, you know, antagonist in the elk woman. Um, and that I, I was talking with some friends about that. Like that's a book that a hundred percent could have been on broken river back in the day and yeah. seen an audience of 600 people. Um, and the fact that, that, you know, Joe at saga, you know, took the leap with that was was fantastic to me and then and then when jones got the the tommy orange blurb and you know um gallery decided to to make that book kind of their big spend of the season it was just uh, just a rocket from there but what a, what a strange kind of way to break through into the marketplace i think his his follow-up the the lake witch trilogy is a much more commercial piece um you know it's dealing with slashers it's got that kind of meta scream approach but right. uh no absolutely i 100 percent love some of the stuff that say Jones or even Paul Tremblay's pulled off. Like if you look at Tremblay's books, they could all be classified as dark literary fiction or thrillers. Um, you For know, sure. there's no guaranteed supernatural element to any of them. There's allusions to it. There's possibilities, but you know, and then him throwing ambiguous endings out there, playing with expectation, doing these really kind of almost poetic passages. Um, so I think, I think there's more flexibility in the mainstream market now in a really compelling way. Um, I mean, you know, Evanson got a profile in the New York Times. So there's there's beautiful things happening that are, that yeah. are breaking through right now. And it does feel like, uh, you know, there's not not a full, like, 1980s level horror resurgence where, like, Robert McCammon had billboards on the side of, you know, side of the road for his next book. But right. it, it feels right. pretty wild. And it, it feels like people are understanding that horror right now is is a significant thing for people processing everything else that's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, so if it's you a look at time. Yeah, if you look at imprints like Nightfire, you know, who's, who's, you know, I'm publishing a couple of books with, like, they're, you know, they're horror. They're like, you know, they're Taurus horror brand, which is Macmillan's genre brand, right? So, yeah, yeah, there, there's emerged, and they've only been around for like a year, but it feels like they've been around for a, a lot longer, right? But they're um, definitely doing the work. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing the work. And let me ask you, let me ask you this. This is an interesting question. I, I just, if you could, okay, because we, you've talked about, okay, Here's, I have this book. Let's call it. Let's 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 take Skullcrack City as an example. And if you had the option of being like on a big five, but you were going to be low man on the totem pole when they came to their marketing and promotions budget, or you could be on call it 
a decent sized indie and you were going to be their premiere release okay for the year which one would you which one would you go with and why i'm putting you on the spot but i'm very curious to get your opinion on this oh man uh because it's so, distribution, it's market. Because a lot of things you got to take into consideration. It's money, it's distribution, it's marketing. You know. Yeah, the, and, and the marketing thing really is, you know, a, a huge part of that spend. You know, otherwise you're getting you're getting arcs sent out. You're getting a couple good reads giveaways. Um, maybe they post a graphic on release day, and and then you're out in the wild and go get it, kid. You know. <laughs> so yeah. Um, you know, man, that's that's a tough one. Just because it, the distribution is so significant. Um, right. the, the production capabilities of the big five, being able to get, you know, having same day release of the, the Kindle, the print and the audio going through the trade paperback surge, you know, uh, their capability to do tie-ins. If there's a tie-in product, having, um, all that, all that kind of front space, having it out there. Yeah. I just think it, it's a different market. Like when, when I did entropy and bloom, I realized, okay, there's a significant chunk of people that despite my sense of it had had no idea I existed. And for the first time ever through Entropy and Bloom, we're finding me because the book was in a Barnes and Noble. And that was the yeah. difference. You know? And that wasn't even a, I mean, Skyhorse is, believe me, and I'm saying this, my book is just came out on Skyhorse, so I can say this. Skyhorse is not like a big five press. Like they are basically an indie, uh, but they do have more reach, right? They have, um, but they're not going to put in marketing dollars. You know, I didn't even get arcs, you know, for my right. book. So, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, that's, so, it's kind of a degrees thing. And I think I won't name the author because I don't know if they'd want me to repeat this information necessarily with them tagged to it. But this friend of mine said he had published a couple books on an indie press. And then he published a book with a big five. And he said, man, even though I wasn't getting like the, the big name, the, you know, I wasn't, even though the publisher wasn't breaking out the fine China as you know, as you once put it, um, the, the the reach was night and day. It was not even comparable. Like the sales, even though they weren't marketing it very well, were really night and day compared to the indie stuff, what I was putting out with the indie press. And I say that because I think a lot of times you hear people saying, oh, you know, if, it kind of doesn't matter because these days because you're always, it's all about up to the author to promote it and stuff like that. But there is an element of, to your point, getting everything out front on the day, you know, day and date, all those, you know, uh, and all the things they do behind the scenes for distribution that those big five presses do when you're talking about a company versus like a person who's doing all the work, it does give you, I think, a leg, a leg up. Like, did you notice that? Did you notice a pretty large disparity when the loop came out? Um, the loop. Yeah. I noticed it when, um, we got the Audible Daily Deal, which actually none of none of us did. We no one understands how uh, how Amazon ended up doing that. But uh, for one day, we had the second best selling audiobook. Period. Like not not in any genre. Like there was Matthew McConaughey, and then there was The Loop, and then there was Barack Obama. Like it was. <laughs> my wife That's looked awesome. at it and she said, "She was like, babe, I think the internet's broken. Something crazy is happening." And neither of us could believe it, you know? Um, and so it was just, you know, I, I don't have an audiobook for any of my other titles. So them having worked through that production arm, guaranteed the product was in full distribution everywhere, and then having that kind of boon land is, is something I hadn't experienced before. Like we moved something like 8,000 copies in a day, you know, which yeah. was, you know, that's, that's a couple years work on an indie press title to, to pull that off without, you know, the right TikTok algorithm. So, right. um, so yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's just no... 
there's no there's no comp there with distribution. If if I felt like something didn't have any commercial legs, I would 100%. I probably wouldn't even go to the middle market. I would just do it through Coevolution Press because I love the margins of 100% royalties, even with diminishing returns um, on print on demand because of paper costs and inflation and stuff. Um, I found that to be quite beneficial too. Just owning your masters and and uh, selling your own weird stuff has been really great for me too. So um, yeah, I would I would either go all the way to big five or put it out myself because either way I'm going to do my best to get the book out there. You know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So the, so the, the book that you just, your most recent book, which was a collection of sort of, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like almost like, uh, it was like uncollected short story. It wasn't even uncollected short stories. There were a few of them were in your, but you had like your mainstream quote unquote commercial, uh, short story collection, uh, entropy and then you had this one that just came out i think in the last year which is more like um almost b-sides b in a way right it's like a, the more the, so that's a little more out there is that correct am i think am i describing it correctly that's 100 percent right it's okay. <laughs> it's like it's like my basement demos and b-sides and uh it's a lot of my earliest fiction and it's also just um you know i was edging towards that kind of transgressive market at the time um and so it's it's a lot of it's kind of nasty work or it's it's really out there um it's experimental you know there's like a, a prose poem from the point of view of a of a nuclear bomb going off like that right <laughs> that kind of thing that just um you know my alternate title in my head was just new york said no like at, at one point when we were working on entropy <laughs> and blue uh i took a, a really weird i i'm super into kind of data analytics and stuff like that's what i'm working on as a, as a business degree right now and i had taken all the goodreads reviews all the um you know, venue reviews and Amazon reviews and done a kind of sentiment analysis of all of my short work across years, which was, that's a hard thing to do emotionally, but it was really informative. And Entropy and Bloom was actually built, um, built to function off of the things that had been most acclaimed. So we literally saw it as like a, a um, audience driven greatest hits, you know, what, what did people do? And, and that's okay. what that book is. Um, and there was actually one story in there that, um, that was on that popular list, but it was like my third story in a row that had parasites and a child dying. And the, the editor came to me and said, it's just beyond the pale. Like we can't kill one more kid in this book. Right. Um, so, you know, so thank goodness, uh, Corey was, was paying close enough attention there. And so like that story is in the other collection. Um, a lot, a lot of the weirdest stuff. Um, but then it's, did you, it's nice to have it out there though. Yeah. So did you, how did you publish that book? Can you, I'm, I, you, you said it quickly and I, and I, and I missed it. Did you self-publish it or you published it with like a smaller press? So I, I uh, launched an imprint last summer just called Coevolution Press. And the idea okay. is that, you know, Coevolution is this weird little parasite that's growing alongside my other body of work that's kind of latched onto it. And, you know, thematically, that's kind of where I came up with the idea. And it's for the people who want the weirder, darker stuff um, that I've done to be able to get access to it because you know Skullcrack City and In the River had been out of print too and and we're starting to command like kind of gross amounts on eBay and I was feeling bad for readers because I just feel like your work should be accessible um it should be affordable and accessible for people to enjoy and and nobody should be paying a, a premium to be able to get a hold of your work so right uh it just felt really good to to get that stuff back out into the marketplace and and then you know if I write something next and I send it to Molly and she's like this is too fucked up Coevolution's gonna put it out and then so coevolution is one. so coevolution is your imprint, and are you working with? So when you say an imprint, is it? Are you working with a, a, a publisher, or is oh, no, it? It's all, just it's just me. I'm using Lightning Source. It's, it's your shingle. It's your oh, shingle. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a 
what do they call? I don't think you, they use the term vanity press. It's just me. Okay, no, <laughs> it's, that's cool. It's just a way for people to get uh, get cheap copies of my uh, old weird stuff. Yeah. yeah, but it's cool because, and to be your point, here are the here are the positives. You get one hundred percent of the revenue, right? Yep. Uh, you control the way it looks. You control how it's distributed. And these days, distribution is not quite as tricky. You know, back in the eighties or what nineties, you know, you had to print everything. You had to find a warehouse to distri- you know, to, to house it and distribute it. Now you, everything's print on demand, right? So, um, so it's not. It's 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 kind of uh, it's kind of easier now to kind of have your own business and to and to and to control your own product and your own brand. And that's, um, Brian Keen and I were talking about it. He, he was a guest a few weeks ago and, you know, he started his own, uh, uh, imprint and he's, he's bringing in all the stuff that's out there and he's kind of bringing it all in house, you know, all the rights, he's getting all the rights back. He's bringing in all the titles back. And so he's kind of setting up for, you know, for his kids, for the future so that he has everything is back into under his control and under his own brand. I thought that was really fascinating. And it's, so there's something to be said for, for what, you're talking about and it's it's a lot of work though man it's like right i mean it you have to like deal with the day-to-day running of that business to a degree don't you oh yeah i uh so i'm very very lucky uh back in the day working with cameron and lazy fascist press i got introduced to matthew rivera and so rivera is just aces and we have this long-standing relationship um uh as when it comes to design and so you know i go to him uh for both interior and cover design um, on the production level, because I just I just love the way he does it. And so, it, once I get the content down and figure out the cover, work with the cover artists and things like that, um, you know, and then and then tune things up on the editorial front. Then he and I work on on getting the final product um, out to the market. But it's definitely, I mean, just relaunching Coevolution took months. You know, it, it, it's a lot of work. But once it's back out there, um, it's just mailbox money after that. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's super nice to just have it have it exist. Um, you know, and, and I, I love being able to control the covers too. Honestly, I feel like, uh, sure. I have a certain aesthetic that I like from like juxtaposed magazine and this kind of high pulp, uh, cover art that I feel is really dynamic and, and, uh, man, I, I love being able to design my own stuff. Um, and if, if you don't mind my asking, and if you do, if you do mind, please tell me, I, I don't want to put you in a spot. How do you, how are you, um, what are you using as far as the back end is concerned for your, for your, for your own, uh, imprint? Like for uh, production and distribution, how are you doing? Oh, uh, we're just Lightning Source. Lightning Source out of okay. Tennessee. Um, okay. And they are what they are. Uh, <laughs> they, well, they're, if, well, it's different, right? Because if you were Amazon, you can, right. only, there's, there's, you can only be on Amazon. You can't be in brick-and-mortar bookstores. But if you yeah, I looked Lightning at a great space, but I've, I've, yeah. I've been working with um, Lightning Source long enough that I kind of know their rigors and what they're expecting from file size. And, and they're relatively flexible about um, refunding when they goof up production. Mm-hmm. And overall, their their qualities improved greatly since we started working with them in like 2004. So you know, oh, really? um, okay, they they have a lot more options, and uh, their map books still feel super waxy and odd, and and their spines uh, tend to crumble after a while. But overall, I, I I've been happy working with them. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm always curious about that because I remember I've learned a lot about. You know, self distribution. I know, like like I said, Amazon comes with certain caveats. You can't, you know, if you use an Amazon ISBN, you can't. It don't has to be on Amazon, but then you get like more money and blah blah blah, and they quote unquote promote your title more. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say. Oh, it's totally true. They, I mean, we've seen. Oh, really? Interesting. Know, uh, we've seen really tight correlations between um, when you have something on CreateSpace versus just Lightning Source. 
um, mm-hmm. how inconvenient they might make it for, for readers to see it during the initial weeks of launch or even when it heats up. Um, it's gotten a little bit better. I think they actually caught enough static from, you know, the readership about what they were doing or authors or something. It seems, it seems like they've gotten a little bit better about it, but for a while it was almost a directly antagonistic thing on the Amazon front. Um, you know, and they're just, that's, that's one of the downsides of independent publishing is that Amazon dependency. Um, because right. if you're putting physical copies in stores, a lot of times you're doing that as an individual, you're handling the, the shipping and you're making sure they get the proper 40% discount and you're doing the legwork and getting to know the buyers. Um, you know, and that, that definitely is another side of labor and, and that takes away from some of the, the return, you know, you're putting in those extra hours on that front. But once you have those relationships and, and they just know to contact you and say, we need more books, it, it can be pretty great. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. I, it's something I'm, I'm personally kind of beginning to explore. I'm dipping my toe in the water, but down the road, cause I want to, you know, I think what's important for me, what I always tell writers is when you sign a contract is, you know, for me, the number one thing, and anyway, this is subjective, but for me, the number one thing is uh, be careful of what rights you're giving out because you want, you know, it's all to me, it's all about rights. Cause I've just heard so many horror stories about writers who sign contracts and they give the rights away to their IP to mm-hmm. a publisher forever. And, you know, indefinitely, and you never get those rights back or they're restricted to how you can do with like adaptations and film and TV and stuff. So it's, it's it must be a good feeling to know when you have, like, I think it was a couple of years ago, you were able to get a lot of your rights back in house, right. For some of your older books. I, I think I read something about that. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's accurate. I mean, I, I, aggressively pursued it <laughs> right so, yeah it's, it's hard it's, not, it's no yeah, joke when, yeah. once i had when i once i had the sense of um you know how how much i could reach you know kind of the right readership with with print on demand and um the had established that for myself i realized a lot of these things i could benefit from more and and have more control of and kind of get a preferred edition of things out um and so the idea of taking those things back in-house was really exciting to me, you know, and I, I'll, I'll continue to do that as, you know, titles kind of get remaindered and, and left out, you know, I want to grab everything back up and, and keep it out there. Um, so people can find this stuff. Yeah. Um, I have, I, I have an awesome. books stay out there in perpetuity, but, but that's often not the case. And so, uh, yeah. having a way to, to ensure that is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and you can also, these days you can make your own audiobook deals. There, there are third, there are third party companies now who, uh, who do this kind of stuff. It seems like there's more and more ways being developed to get work out for the individual. Um, all right. Well, listen, man, I'm over time, but I wanted to, I want to thank you for all this uh, great conversation but before I let you go, just something to leave writers with. Um, I, I, you, you have some, you have some really great, you have a really great perspective on, on writing and, and uh, on writing advice. And, 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 and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think you, you said something about write your truth right? Mm-hmm. Is one of your big right tips. Can you just expand on that a little bit? And then before we head out? Absolutely. Um, so the whole thing about writing your truth is just coming to the page in kind of the way like Lansdale likes to say, like, write, write like all your relatives are dead. You know, <laughs> don't, don't right. worry. Don't worry about the Twitter sphere. Don't worry about your relatives. Right. Um, the, the more raw you are on the page, the more truth and individual unique experience you bring to it, um, the stronger your voice is going to be and the more you'll actually relate to people. There's something about the specificity of your take on life and the way you've lived it um, versus trying to, to sand all those edges off for the marketplace. There's something about that specificity that really speaks to people. Uh, and, you know, the truer you are to that, 
I think the more you affect people on an emotional level, because all of a sudden they're like, you know what, that's a thought I've had 20 times, but never heard someone express. And now they develop this kind of trust in you and in your voice. And, and, um, you know, that's a wonderful feeling when somebody contacts you and they're like, you know, I'm just so glad that you, you express this in this way. Uh, it felt, felt very honest to me. And, um, that's just an amazing connection to make with people. And I think it's what makes people's voices unique aside from all their influences, you know, which was a huge part of voice two is all that experience and, and being truthful to it versus thinking, how does horror product work? How does genre work? Just thinking like, what do I want to say? And what's unique about my voice? Um, so yeah, I think that's an essential part of what I love in most authors I read. There's something, something unique to their voice that comes from the way they're telling their truth, you know? Yeah. And I think that's you, you know, whether, whether you want to be a big five writer or whether you just want to like get your book out there and, you know, in any way you can, because it's, it's just something you love doing, you know, whether you want it to be a career or whether you want it to be something you do part-time or a hobby, whatever it is, I think having your own unique voice, you know, will ensure almost to some degree that you'll find readership because to your point, there will always be those readers that are looking for someone to connect with. And, uh, you know, if you're true to yourself and the way you write, on the way you express yourself, you'll find readers who feel and think the same way you do. Um, hey, Jeremy, thank you, man. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, man. Pleasure to be here. All right. All right. Cool, man. Uh, well, hey, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'm sure you've learned a lot. Make sure you rewind this and listen to the whole thing again, because there's a lot of things that Jeremy dropped that I, you'll want to take into consideration for the future. And until next time, as always, I can't wait to do this again on The Dark Word. Hey guys, it's Philip again. I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Book House, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com, that's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or the Book and Film Globe podcast. Audio. Oh,